I'm Margaret Feinberg, and this is the Joycast. Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Joycast, the hap, hap, happiest half hour of your week. As always, I'm your host, Margaret Feinberg. And when you come to my kitchen, you'll notice that we love olive oil. Kalamata olive oil, lemon-infused olive oil, Greek olive oil, and so many more. We've been in a series where we've been spending six Joycast episodes diving into the taste and see, discovering God among butchers, bakers, and fresh food makers, book and Bible study. Each week, I've been interviewing people featured in the book alongside some wonderful surprise guests. In the first episode, we talked about hospitality with Sarah Harmeyer. Then we learned about figs from one of our nation's premier fruit farmers. Next, we dove into ancient grains with the head of the Divinity School from Yale University, Andrew McGowan. Then you heard from Neil Bouchard, who has spent his life working in a salt mine in order to understand the mentions of salt in the Bible. Well, in this episode, it is all about the olive. I learned so much about this incredible tree and its fruit that while the chapter in Taste and See, the book was about 5,000 words, my original draft was close to 15,000 words, three times the length. So today, On the Joycast, I wanted to share with you some background about the key role that olives played in my writing of Taste and See, as well as some of the incredibly rich lessons that I wrote about that no one has seen or heard before. So pull up a chair. You don't want to miss this delicious olivey episode. About 10 years ago, I finished writing a book called Scouting the Divine, Searching for God in Wine, Wool, and Wild Honey. In this adventure, I spent time with farmers and beekeepers and vintners and shepherds. And much like Taste and See, I opened up the scripture and I asked, how do you read these passages? Not as theologians, but in light of what you do every day. What I discovered opened my eyes, my heart, and my spirit to the wonders of the agrarian or agricultural world of the Bible. It helped passages come alive in a whole new way. Well, when I was finished writing that book, I remember that people kept coming up to me at various events, and they all asked the same question. Why didn't you include olives and the olive tree? It was a great question, and honestly, at the time, the book had been big enough and enough research, there just wasn't room. But I held on to that question, and as I thought about it and mulled it over, I sensed the Holy Spirit say, you're not done. Though I was done writing that book, I knew that I needed to go and spend time with an olive grower. And so I have been sitting on the idea of writing Taste and See for almost a decade. And when I finally went and spent time with that olive grower, the mentions and the incredible history of the olive came alive in a whole new way. You see, of all the elements I've tasted and touched and savored in scripture, none has proven more healing, sensual, and lingersome as the olive. 
The fruit of the tree bursts with a sharp, savory zest and then transforms into buttery coolness. Like the marula tree of Africa, the shimmering olive tree has become an iconic symbol throughout the Mediterranean and Middle East. Olives imbue the flavors of the land and the culture. Botanically speaking, an olive tree produces a stone fruit, also known as a droop, because of its hardened exterior. The nourishing flesh can be nibbled or pressed into oil. And our planet contains over 900 million olive trees, but 90% of them reside in the Mediterranean region. Several countries in the Middle East still squabble over who owns the oldest living olive tree. But then again, squabbling is sport in that region of the world. This regal fruit has been heralded throughout history. Many believe that olive trees were among the first domesticated plant. Their multi-use for nourishing the body, beautifying the skin, and curing ills and all of their purposes, it made them popular across cultures. Ancient Egyptians used the oil in the mummifying process. The surviving frescoes in Ramses' tomb reveal vases of olive oil, and the images represent a lavish gift from a future world. The Greeks created the original Olympic flame from burning olive branches, and those who won the ancient competitions celebrated their victories with olive Reese. As the Roman Empire grew, they planted olives across Europe, wherever the climate allowed. Not only did the empire become the largest olive oil producer in Europe, but they developed the oil as balm and body care, medicine, engineering, and cooking enrichment. The substance became like an anchor store for a shopping plaza we'd frequent today perhaps along with bath and body works, urgent care, architectural engineers, and a culinary school offering one-stop shopping. One of the ways that archaeologists confirm the popularity of oil in Roman times, the times when Jesus lived, is from the innumerable bottles of oil they've unearthed, made of wood, ceramic, silver, gold, and bronze, even glass. The elongated vases with these miniature handles were worn on the wrists of ladies like bracelets. More recently, they even discovered an olive press near Tel Aviv, capable of producing 2,000 tons of olive oil a year. For Christians in a post-Roman world, olive oil became a holy symbol. The Christ-following community found their identity, their mark of belonging within the olive. Christians chose to fast from the barbarians' culture of lard and meat. Monasteries utilized olives for lighting the sacraments and food, a way to fast from wild influences and lean into the rich legacy of the martyrs, who were said to have been burned alive in the oil. Throughout their delicious history, olives represent everything from peace to anointing to victory to wealth to transfer of power. It is no wonder that their influences reached into philosophy, science, literature, and art. Aristotle used the droops to cook up fresh morsels of philosophy, while Leonardo, he invented a more efficient olive press. Van Gogh painted 18 images of the regal fruit, while Renoir 
Well, he almost refused to paint them entirely, noting that the light of the olives sparkle like diamonds and the changing hues are, quote, enough to drive you mad. Everyone from Homer to Dante to Shakespeare admired the fruit and its branches as symbols of quality and of endurance. In the Mediterranean, olives are part of the land and they're part of the people. Poet and scholar Williams Barnstone says that if there are four elements in the world, earth, water, fire, and air, then olives, well, they're the fifth. Americans have been slow to catch on to the power and potency of the olive, perhaps none worse than the church. The olive was one of the first old world plants to be rooted in America. The agricultural skills of the Dominican, Jesuit, and Franciscan missionaries brought olives into South America, then Mexico, then Alta, California, in the late 18th century. In fact, friars planted olive trees in San Diego in 1760 to lubricate machinery, prepare wool to spin, make soap, cook, light, and of course, anoint. Mexico seized the land from the church, and the orchards were abandoned and languished. But never forget the rise of this persistent regal fruit. A few trees survived in the San Jose Mission in San Diego. And when Italian immigrants arrived in the late 19th century, they recognized the trees because of their true value. They trimmed and pruned and watered and transplanted. Because of the high cost of harvesting in the United States, they developed an industry that was based on canning olives. But for Americans, olives took far too long to catch on. As recent as the 1920s, one of the most popular salads was the flapper salad, which consisted of lettuce, mayonnaise, cheese, pears, maraschino cherries, and artificial colorings, which makes me think, ooh, what? The idea of sliced tomatoes, basil, fresh mozzarella, and olive oil, well, back then, it seemed foreign. One of the first entrances of olives into popular culture was the 1933 animated cartoon debut of Popeye the Sailor. Only Americans could name a silly cartoon character after the olive. No reverence, Barnstone noted, referring to the classic Popeye cartoon. In fact, the Spanish disapproved of that silly character named Olive Oil so much that when they translated Popeye the Sailor into Spanish for Spain, they renicknamed her Rosaria. Tides shifted with the emergence of the Mediterranean diet in the 1950s, and popular culture nudged Americans forward. Serious fans of The Godfather remember Don Vito Cortone died outside the heart of his empire. His family owned an olive oil business. And kids who watched Aladdin know the genie sits in an oil lamp until rubbed. Once released, he becomes a prince. Today, a long list of cooking personalities, including Mario Batelli, Bobby Flay, and Rachel Ray, have made extra virgin olive oil, E-V-O-O, Evu, a mainstay in countless kitchens, including ours. Leif and I traveled to the remote island of Havar in Croatia in order to bring in an olive harvest. The tiny car we ride in sputters and lunges as we ascend the narrow, windy road. 
Each hairpin turn gnaws at my steely resolve not to become nauseous. I refuse to look over the edge of steepness, but in a moment of weakness, I peer down the cliff that's inches from our car's tires. As a passenger, I can't slam the brakes, so I slam my eyes shut. I practice my breathing exercises to regain composure. When I reopen, we are in all of them. Unlike modern crowded orchards, the gnarled tree trunks stand apart as if each has been granted its own parcel of land. These trees were never planted in cozy rows or neat lines, but crooked, random powders up the side of the mountain slope. Each gnarled trunk boasts a dew of grayish-green leaves with silvery undersides that blow in the wind. Some trees appear weighed down with olives, their branches so heavy they almost touch the ground. Others bear little fruit. We approach an elderly couple parked along the side of the road. They pick from the same tree. Natalia, our hostess, slows to yell something friendly out the window in Croatian, and we skid by. More elderly couples and families appear. Natalia honks and waves at each one. We've entered into an agrarian community where everyone knows each other. A sharp right turn thrusts my body against the car door. I gasp for another breath. Natalia speeds ahead. We veer to the side of the road and come to a sudden stop in what appears to be the middle of nowhere. Yet olive trees stretch down the steep slope. With each trunk, I find whirls of wood grain, which like clouds soon appear as faces or familiar forms. Beneath a patchwork quilt of olive trees sits crumbling rock walls, chewed by centuries of harsh weather, along with wild vegetation and neglect. They crisscross in every direction like a knotted fishing net. This is one of our fields, Natalia announces with pride. My jaw drops at the many acres of expanse. That is a lot of olive trees to pick. We unload worn five-gallon buckets and tarps out of the trunk. I'm already feeling better in the fresh air. I reach to tug olives from a nearby branch. No, no, Natalia says, waving me to stop. Not ours. This way. We hike the steep mountainside through the trees. In the distance, I see one human. Wait, that that makes two. A hand strains toward the top branches with a rusty knife. I catch a glimpse that makes me uncomfortable. What's an elderly woman doing on a ladder that high? A second figure plucks olives from the ground and tosses them onto the tarp. I recognize the woman as a roommate of Natalia, Anna. She waves, Marguerite! I hug my new bestie. An aged woman descends from the ladder wearing an unbuttoned, torn black sweater and offers a toothless smile. Natalia introduces us to her mother. Mama, I shout as if I'm in an Italian wedding movie. Where do we start? I ask. She points to three specific trees more than a dozen meters apart. That one, those two, Natalia says. I thought you owned them all, I say, a bit relieved. We are not rich, Natalia laughs. All the trees belong to different families. My father bought these three long years ago. I'm surrounded by kilometers of broken down walls and crooked lines separating the trees. Over the years, the olive trees have been traded and bartered. The great lines of division were not borne by property sale as much as inheritance. A hundred years ago, if a parent divided the trees among a dozen children, Well, you can do the math. 
Backtrack a few hundred or thousand years before that, and you can now see the land separated into complex labyrinths of family properties. Staring across the expanse, I remember the ancient proverbs. Don't cheat your neighbor in moving the ancient boundary markers set up by previous generations. The steep hill offers a vivid image of the importance of respecting, remembering, and honoring the past, as well as embracing integrity for the future. The olives, dark purple, light green, and everything in between fill the branches. The reddish ones look like cherries, the bright green like mini sour apples. Lumpy brownish and browned ones squish easily into the ground. I later learned that olives turn darkish when they are ultra-ripe, bursting with oil and fall because they're too heavy. The stem cannot hold them, so we must gather these two, but keep careful watch to avoid the ones the worms or mice might have beat us to in the harvest. Until now, I thought green olives grew on one kind of tree and red ones on another. Turns out they all grow together and ripen at different times, moving from green to red to black, depending on the angle of the sun. The work appears simple enough. Approach a family olive tree and start plucking. The first plumps into my bucket are like popcorn beginning to pop. Then I hesitate. Which color should I pick? I ask. All of them, Natalia answers. Depending on the color or ripeness, individual olives produce varying amounts of oil. The green produce the least, the black the most, yet all are required to bring in a harvest. The only ones to avoid are those infected with insect holes. A few rotten olives can ruin the whole bunch. Hunger and curiosity drive me to pluck an olive for tasting. I spew bitter bits from my mouth. A sample of a black one elicits the same response. Anna laughs. I learn the twisted-faced way that olives are never meant to be eaten fresh from the tree. Which are best? I ask. Natalia explains that the black olives, many of which dot the ground, contain the most oil. Historically, people left the black olives on the higher branches until Easter, as that was among the first foods that would carry them through the long winters. But today, families start picking mid-October-ish, while the fruit is still hard. They harvest red and green and every shade in between. Ripening occurs at different times each year because olives follow the weather, not the calendar. Natalia and her family can't afford to delay. They must complete harvest by December when the mills shut down and icy temperatures make picking painful and even precarious. Listening to the pitter-patter of olives in my bucket, Natalia explains that on the island of Havar, where many aging parents own property, harvesting has become an increasing challenge. The elderly must solicit help from family and friends. Even now, Natalia shortens her work hours at the hotel, and Anna, her friend, has come to help. For those whose children have moved to the mainland for work, their family's olive trees appear neglected in disarray. Hiring someone is not an option because it's impossible to pick enough olives to cover one's wages. That's why Mama appears so happy to see us. The family needs anyone and everyone they can find. The taller, the better. I continue to pick until Mama climbs down from her ladder, approaches me, and says something incomprehensible. Then she slides her hand up the branch. 
with a swift gliding motion, her fingers descend. More than a dozen olives plop into the bucket. She pulls down a cluster. I try to emulate her gentle massage of the branch. I must remove the fruit without harming the tree, and yet leaves still fly in all directions. I crack a portion of a thin branch. Then three olives plonk into my pail. I have much to learn from Mama. The gentle approach is crucial because the tips of the branches are the sources of next year's growth and harvest. This is also why we handpick rather than use sticks or rakes or machines. Those contraptions often damage the new growth as well as bruise the fruit, which yields higher acidity and less desirable oil. Plus, when we pick by hand, we can sort the berries nibbled by the mice or insects. Besides the rustle of branches and occasional sawing of wood scraps by Mama, we work in silence. The quiet gives me room to reflect and observe. I find the olive leaves mesmerizing. I pluck a leaf and rub it between my fingers to feel its soft texture and inhale its earthy scent. These remarkable leaves have the ability to shape themselves to accommodate changing seasons. The undersides contain tiny hairs around the pores that monitor the weather. The leaves open flat with a moist season and curl inward during dry spells. The silver leaves confirm what weather.com has already informed us. Namely, we have arrived during the rainy season. I offer up a prayer. Father, like this leaf, help me to recognize the season that you have me in. The word echoes in my being. Healing. It's no mistake, Jesus is arrested on the Mount of Olives near an olive press and probably nailed to an olive tree. The Messiah, which translated means the Anointed One. Well, some suspect that when he returns, he will be slathered in oil. He did this. He made this sacrifice. He went to the cross. He went to the olive garden. Why? In the crushing where his dripping blood he did it for you and for me. And so the question for you today is simply this. Where do you most need his healing? Because the anointed one, the Messiah, he awaits to arise with healing in his wings. Sometimes we grow disappointed because the healing we ache for does not come when or how we long for. Yet rest assured, my friend, this day, That though God does not heal you in one area of your life does not mean he is not healing you in 10,000 others. Thanks for listening to this edition of The Joycast. If you've enjoyed today's conversation and you'd like to dive deeper into the unexpected joys awaiting you around your table, check out my new book and Bible study, Taste and See. Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers. These resources will help you savor your life, nourish your friendships, and embark on your greatest faith adventure. You can purchase them at your favorite retailer or margaretfeinbergstore.com. If you do, reach out to me on social media or my website and let me know what you think. Until we meet again, bon appetit and amen.